Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Thanks for taking the time to listen. The 51st interview in this podcast series is with Dow H., a man whose revolving door story of getting sober, slipping, and struggling to get sober again should be heard by AAs everywhere. It's a cautionary tale that shines a bright light on the cunning, baffling, and powerful nature of alcoholism, a disease that's always lurking just outside the perimeter of AA, ready to claim those who let up on this program of action. In Dow's case, his family history of alcoholism and drug addiction replicated early in his life when his loneliness and fear of disappointing others needed relief. Drinking, smoking marijuana, and later cocaine were vital to his ability to cope with life. As a functional alcoholic and addict, he actually succeeded in his academic pursuits, including a law school degree, but his constant need to escape from himself was ever-present. Finally, after run-ins with the law and other consequences of his disease, he ended up in rehab for the first time, during which he was introduced to AA. While he stayed sober for a period of time, his success with sobriety also fed his ego. Rather than gratefully embracing the program, he reclaimed illusory management of his life and soon found himself actually planning his next relapse. During his subsequent seven-year slip, diverging from any hope of recovery, he fed his addictions with reckless living fueled by brain-damaging crack cocaine use and nefarious relationships. When he finally hit his bottom after three more treatment centers, Dow crawled back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But his erroneous belief that it would be easy to come back was soon crushed by the excruciating realization that he would have to give up and give in to the program once and for all if he was to get sober and stay alive. But this time he embraced the program, did the work, and is sober to this day. Those listeners who have relapsed one or more times will identify immediately with Dow's poignant story. Those who've ever considered relapse may think twice or be dissuaded to follow through with a slip. However you hear his story, I think you'll find the next hour to be extremely valuable. By the way, I apologize for the rare technical glitch with the interviewer portion of this podcast that makes it sound like I'm conducting the interview from a phone booth, for those of you who remember what a phone booth is. But the quality of content is still excellent and should make up for any subpar audio. So, without further ado... AA Recovery Interviews and I are pleased to welcome my longtime friend and AA brother, Dow H. I'm Dow. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Dow. Thanks for coming on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast today. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, you know, I've been interested in your story for a long time because I know that you had a period of time sober and then at some point along the way you went out. A relapse is definitely a part of my story, although it, it doesn't have to be a part of everyone's story. And I guess that's my story is a cautionary tale <laughs> in a sense, what not to do and, and how hard it is to get back in the program once you've left. Yeah, that's probably one of the most important stories that can be told in this particular format. So your sobriety date. May 23rd, 2008. 13 years. I guess that may be the first I met you was in 2008 at the men's meeting that you and I go to. Actually, it took me a couple of years to go to that meeting. Prior to yeah. that, I had been mostly doing club meetings around town. Right. Mixed meetings mostly, but 
you know, after I uh, I got in a relationship and and wanted to go a little deeper, I, I started attending the men's meetings. Yeah, that's cool. And I always suggest to the men that I sponsor that they go to a certain number of men's meetings every week. So if we do a look back in the life of Dow H, what are we going to find your original environment? Let's say your nuclear family or your family of origin. What was that experience like for you? From an uh, alcoholism perspective, I had it in my genes and uh, in my environment growing up. Mm -hmm. Both of my parents are adult children of alcoholics. My grandfather, my father's father, he died when I was a little under a year old. The coroner's report said uh, heart attack, and that certainly may have caused it. But uh, my understanding is, is... he had struggled with the sobriety for a long time. He'd even attended some meetings and, and pulled together a little bit of time, but I don't know if he worked the steps or not. He was coming off a bender and uh, died of a heart attack. How old was he? He was, I believe, 52. 52. He was pretty young. My father has never been much of a drinker, uh, uh-huh. in part because he said he grew up with an alcoholic and he decided he didn't want to be when he, when he grew up. Uh-huh. So I never... I don't remember seeing my parents drink very much. My mother would drink some beer every now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents divorced when I was two. And, you know, that I've spent a lot of time on psychologist couches and, and, and looked at that from a bunch of different angles. And it probably ties into a fear of abandonment for me and, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Some of those causes and conditions that we like to talk about. Mm-hmm. One of the, the things was is... Uh, because of the divorce, my parents, it was a really contentious divorce. They didn't really talk to one another, except when it came to me. They would talk to me, uh, kind of, and I was the go-between between them both for a while. My father became very financially successful running a business and taking it public. Uh, mm-hmm. My mother never had that kind of financial success, so I really lived this kind of uh, double life. Of I'd go with my father on the weekends, and we'd go do fantastic things like you know go to disneyland or or all kinds of fun things and then you know i'd be with my mom which is very modest lifestyle Mm -hmm. it kind of led to this feeling i I, i've heard people in the rooms describe it as you know i I felt like i never fit in I, i didn't fit in with one crowd and i didn't quite fit in with the other i was somewhere in the in the middle and i was alone there i felt very alone i get that the first time i i had heard of drugs or alcoholism that i remember i believe i was seven years old i remember my my mother and stepfather who was a very nice man arguing Mm -hmm. and then they they called me into their room and my mom started to explain that uh my stepfather ray was gonna go away for Mm -hmm. a while and ray my stepfather said no we should tell him Mm -hmm. and so i found out what cocaine was that there was some kind of drug and that he needed to go uh away to get help and that was pretty much all i knew of it i remember visiting him in in rehab He's, and this was in the early 80s, so it was the smoke-filled room and going to a few Alateen and Alatot meetings. Um, mm-hmm. I, I remember being in what we fondly recall as the half-measures room in various uh, clubs <laughs> and things like that, playing around outside while all the adults were inside going to their meetings. And we would frequently have people over to the house that were a part of the program, and they would always talk program, but I didn't really know what what it was about. Mm-hmm. 
I don't mean it to sound malicious. It wasn't. It, it was kind of a crappy situation, and I was stuck in the middle. That they were really trying the best that they could with what they had. Yeah, but it's it's so tough. It's not the sort of thing that a kid should have to do when they're just a kid. The expectation is that they'll understand when their little minds really can't, or that they'll you know they'll deal with it in a way that is very difficult for a child. Did you ever feel that way when you were a kid? Uh, yes, my belief is that I'm two years old, and all of a sudden my daddy leaves. Um, I'm I'm with my mom; she has primary custody, and my family that I had known of had split up, and so I developed this phobia of disappointing her. I know it revolves around fear of abandonment. I did not want to disappoint my mom no matter what, because if I disappointed her, she might leave too. And then what would I, I'd be alone. I see that story playing out throughout my younger life of uh, this, this fear of abandonment and it, you know, shaping my actions and, and my behavior in various unhealthy ways. Yeah. I get that. And that's a universal story for a lot of us alcoholics, that fear of abandonment. It kind of trails us around. Like you, I did a lot of psychotherapy over the years to get to that stuff. Do you feel like the work that you did with psychotherapy got to those issues and and did it help? I believe it helps to a certain extent. Um, I really feel that, you know, one of the underrated benefits of the program is, is I seem to get everything I, I need and can get to just as deep of a place in an AA meeting or talking with someone one-on-one about mm-hmm. the program and about, about what's going on in my life than I ever did on a psychologist's couch. But they certainly created a foundation of knowledge within me that's enabled me to, to have some self-awareness about, about certain aspects of my life. And, and I can then take those things into... Um, into my experience uh, going forward. And into your relationships, I'm sure. Exactly. Now, you mentioned that you were about six or seven years old when you first were exposed to cocaine. Do you remember when it was that you may have had your first drink and what that experience was about? Her name was Francesca, and um, I wanted to impress her so bad. Uh-huh. We, we were at a summer school program overseas. Actually, it was in uh, the American School mm-hmm. in Switzerland. And during the weekends, uh, we would be taken, chaperoned, so to speak, uh, to various mm-hmm. locales. Well, we were in Venice. Um, and she was older. Mm-hmm. I was younger. I was uh, 14. She was maybe had just turned 16. And I had the biggest crush on her in the world. And there was some plan hatched between her friends and my friends to get together in the hotel room and we'd each bring bottles. Um, We brought Mm -hmm. a bottle of cognac, they brought a bottle of tequila. I don't remember very much about that night. Uh, I still don't like tequila (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and and never did (laughs) like tequila. It it twists my stomach just thinking about it. I don't remember anything about that night. Uh, Allegedly, I did black out. I, I think I made an ass of myself, I'm sure. Uh, uh, at mm-hmm. one point, my friend said I wanted to jump out the window and swim in the canal, and they tackled me, put me to bed. I, I woke up the next morning, and my friend is pointing and laughing at me. There's a church bell. There was a church right next door to the hotel, and the church bell was going off. My head was pounding, and I woke up in a pile of my own vomit, and my friend's laughing at me. <laughs> And I felt horrible that entire day, just 
awful, going around to Doge's Palace and all these, you know, wonderful sights of Venice and just feeling horrible. And this was in the middle of summer and the, the canals were filthy and the smells and it, I just, it took me in all day to feel semi-normal. Um, I didn't say to myself I wasn't going to do that again. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, an idea that I, I would not do it again. I didn't want to black mm-hmm. out again, but I, I didn't want to give up on drinking entirely just yet. So you were about, let's say, freshman in high school age when you first drank. What were the balance of your high school years like with regard to drinking and drug use? It went downhill pretty fast. In what way? I started drinking on the weekends, ridding my father's. My, my, my mother's house uh, didn't have any alcohol since my stepfather had been sober for nearly a decade at that point. Yeah. So there was no alcohol there, but uh, my father's house had alcohol and I, I would raid his liquor cabinet um, at night. Mm-hmm. And then I started, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking more. Um, marijuana came into the picture uh, and I really liked marijuana. I ended up using it as often as I could. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was a senior in high school, uh, I had fallen in with this party crowd and uh there was a bar we would go to that would serve minors and we would go there every well i'd like to say every night i don't think it was every night but we'd go there frequently Mm. and one night i got my first dui i was 17 and got pulled over and went to jail and i remember my mother and stepfather picking me up and they said well don't you think it's time you did something about your drinking and your drugging Mm -hmm. and i you know, my mom's the black belt Al-Anon and my, my stepfather, you know, had been sober for a long time. And I told them, no, that that was a, a freak accident, that, that it, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. It was just just bad luck. huh? Just bad luck. Exactly. It was bad luck. And, it, it, you know, everyone else that I was at school with was doing exactly the same things that I did. And none of them got in trouble. It, it was just, you know, a freak coincidence. Was your mother and stepfather's response the classic response that Al-Anon teaches or that AA instills in a person, or or did they go a little bit further with trying to get you to, to take a different course? We talked about it on the trip home from jail that day. Uh-huh. You know, I was adamant that it, it wasn't a problem. It was just a fluke. It wouldn't happen again. Um, later, uh, my stepfather told me, you know, he just prayed that I would find my bottom as fast as I could. It, it didn't stop me. I, I remember that night that we got home, a friend came out to get me and I snuck out my window and we went to a park and smoked a joint together. Mm-hmm. So I had no intentions on quitting whatsoever. And uh, my goal at, at this point was to graduate and move to Colorado where, surprise, there was a woman who, uh, mm-hmm. who I really liked. And and that's what I did is I graduated high school and caught the first uh, first opportunity I could. I, I left and, and went uh, went to Colorado. Were, were there any repercussions or consequences from the DUI? Uh, did you have to go to meetings? Were, were there other uh, requirements after? Did you plea out or how did that work? I it was dismissed. It was dismissed. I, we had an attorney. Uh, and I didn't blow, and and they they ultimately dismissed the case. I didn't even have my license suspended, I guess, because the officer didn't show up 
uh, for that hearing. Wow. So you, you, you got off the hook on that one. I got off the hook. I, I still spent the night in jail. And at that time, that was pretty scary to me. And I knew I didn't want to do that again. But it wasn't going to stop me from drinking and drugging. So you go out to Colorado to be with this woman. Now, this is before Colorado had legal pot, isn't it? Yes, this is 1994, I believe. Yeah. So you're out there with this woman in Colorado. And, and were you going to school at that time? I was. Um, at least that was uh-huh. the pretense I was keeping up. I, I didn't really attend very many classes. Uh, being the first time that I, I was really on my own and I discovered I could use pretty much all the time. So I um, ended up smoking weed all the time and starting to dabble in cocaine and mm-hmm. and drinking. Um, the, the relationship with that woman, she was with someone else and didn't want to leave him. And I... Uh, you know, I had those fears of abandonment uh, crop up and be realized, and, and I sunk into a, a deep hole and ended up, you know, creating more chaos in my life through drugs and alcohol. Mm. It kind of culminated with a uh, drunken episode whereby uh, the girl had told me that she didn't want to be with me. And uh, in a fit mm-hmm. of rage and uh, drunkenness, I... Um, went out on the balcony with a 22 pistol that I had inherited from my grandfather and I fired it in the air and uh, the cops didn't like that mm. very much. They uh, they didn't take me to jail, but they took the gun and they gave me a charge of brandishing and uh, firing a weapon in public. Were you blacked out when that happened and that was told to you later or do you remember it? Yes, I have no no memory of that. No memory. Let me ask you about that. What was that like for you not being able to remember what had happened? Was that frustrating or were you glad that you didn't remember? What were your feelings on that? To be honest, I I think I was just in the moment and I'd come to and kind of take an assessment of what where it was. And, mm-hmm. you know, at the minimum, I was, you know, lying face down in a pizza box. At the worst, I ended <laughs> up in, in a jail cell. So, you know, it's kind of... Uh, uh, there was a comedian who once talked about uh, <laughs> blackouts like time travel. And, and in a sense, that's the way it was. Is I, I, I'd be drinking <laughs> yeah. and then all of a sudden I'd be fast forward six hours later in an entirely different position. And typically I, I had a lot of chaos. And so after that incident in Colorado, the judge uh, told me that uh, he was going to he was going to let me go. But I, I he didn't ever want me to come back to Colorado again which uh, I said, okay, and, and I, I fled kind of back to Houston, mm-hmm. enrolled in school in Houston, and tried to set up a life here. I started dating my old high school girlfriend again. Things are going really well. Mm-hmm. And one night she comes over to my house and she sees my coffee table, and I remember it was just littered with beer cans and alcohol bottles and, and mm-hmm. you know drug paraphernalia, bongs and things like that. And it scared her, and she turned around and left. And I got really into my cups that night and started thinking. And, and I, I really think that I had my first kind of moment of clarity because cause I started thinking about my life and you know how I'd gotten to that position, how I saw myself through this girlfriend's eyes and saw what I had become and and knew that I needed to make a change in my life. So, you know... I, I thought, well, maybe I need to go to the military or or rehab. And I, <laughs> I was pondering those two things. 
Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, did she leave after an argument uh, or did she make a statement to you about why she was leaving? And if not, how did you know how she really felt about it? She came over and and like I said, she saw the mess on my coffee table and, and she I don't remember what she said, but I could just tell in her eyes she was thoroughly disappointed in me and absolutely wanted no part in this situation. And she turned around and walked away. So sometimes that's enough for a moment of clarity, isn't it? It was. So do you feel like that was a defining moment for you as well? It was. Um, I packed my ba- bags for mm-hmm. rehab that night. Um, I went out and I tied a good one on. Um, and I showed up to mm-hmm. her house the next morning and said, I need help. I need to go to rehab. Will you please go with me? And I remember walking through the front doors and, and being very scared about what was going to happen uh, how this was going to go. But I walked in, I had a bag of clothes, toiletries, things like that. I was going to rehab. I knew that that's what I needed to do. Now, when all this was going on, Dow, you, you have a mother who's in Al-Anon. You have a stepfather who's sober in AA for what you said, about 10 or more years. Yes. So did you not go to them first with the with the problem? How did you come up with the idea of going to a rehab the very next day? I gather it's because I saw that's what my stepfather did. You know, he he got mm-hmm. into trouble with with drugs and alcohol and he he left and went to rehab. And I knew that that's kind of what needed to be done. They didn't facilitate your going or anything like that. You That was a decision that you carried out on your own. Yes, it, it was. And, it, you know, it was also to save that relationship. I, I honestly believe that I did want to change for me. I, I could see where I was going living that lifestyle and I was going nowhere. I was smoking weed all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, I was drinking at least a six pack a night. On the weekends, I'd buy a harder bottle and then occasionally we'd, I'd go out and do cocaine. And it felt like life was going nowhere. And so I could see the progression and the way things were going. And, and during that moment of clarity, I had the courage to say, I need to do something about this and stop. I was 19 years old and I checked in and that was February 12th of 1996. Uh, the next day was my first sobriety date, February 13th, 1996. And I was a clean slate. I, I walked into rehab. I did not know what was going on. I remember attending my first AA meeting. It was probably Valentine's Day. They put me in residential treatment and at 19. I, I made it into residential treatment and my roommate had... Uh, told me I needed to get a sponsor and I said uh okay what uh-huh. what's a sponsor and he said he told me what they did and it, and I said well who would you ask and he said well I'd ask this guy Ron so he showed me who Ron was and I went up and introduced myself to Ron and asked him to be my temporary sponsor and I was you know shaking when I when I said it but he said yes mm-hmm. and uh I think he remained my temporary sponsor for 5 years <laughs> was that at the meetings that took place within the treatment facility or are these outside meetings or these people coming in from the outside? Yeah, this was uh, strictly the AA group. Okay, so it was a treatment center AA group. Treatment center AA and the the alumni group um, at that time, and I think still now is very strong, 
we did go uh, to one outside meeting, and it was a great meeting. It was a speaker meeting. Uh, I ended up making the coffee there for years. It was a they called it a rah rah meeting. Two fifteen minute speakers followed by a main speaker. It was the most fun meeting. Yeah, I remember that. They would share about anything. So, how long were you inpatient at that treatment center? I think it was about thirty days. Uh huh. I I got out of treatment and I truly followed the program. I got a sponsor. We started working the steps. I was going to meetings every day, multiple times a day. I had saved the relationship so that my girlfriend and I were still together. And, Uh you know, I I entered this period where I really caught fire with the program, started sponsoring other people. My 21st birthday, I was sober and I never had a a legal drink at that point, but I, I had a couple years sober at that time. It was this really great period of my life. That girlfriend and Uh I got engaged. I started making honor roll at school, ended up graduating, uh, you know, magna cum laude from U of H in political science, Mm -hmm. applied to law school and and got in. Everything seemed to be going really, really well in my life. And um, this is from early in 96 until to about 2000. Now, looking back, would you would you say you were working a strong AA program at that time, or were you just pushing all the right buttons? No, I really was working a strong program. But there are guys that I, I sponsored back then that are still sober. I always had a service position, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, you know on the 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 alumni associate. You know, I I, I did the aftercare for a year, and I facilitated sure. a group for a year. Wow. I um, I made coffee at the St. Cecilia's meeting and then a meeting on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, I made coffee there. I was alternate GSR. Uh-huh. I, I really did get involved quite a bit. And then, you know, they say the actual drink is the last part of a relapse, and that was my experience. Um, step one of my relapse was, I remember it specifically, my fiancé and I at the time were planning on getting married. And we were on the way home from uh, the alumni group where I had just picked up my four-year chip. Uh-huh. And I was on top of the world. You know, I, I was, life was looking good. Uh, and my fiance said she did not want to get married. Oh, no. And that preceded a really long and difficult breakup uh, that took several months. We had bought a house together. You know, things had to be split up and... Um, so it, it was a long and difficult breakup. It was also around this time that my home group kind of fizzled up. For a while, there was a a, a group that was set up that was kind of the, the refugees of, of the old group. And I went there for a little while. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, I was reeling from this tragic relationship that I really had, you know, gotten sober to save. Uh, sure, I'd gotten sober for myself, but... Did you see it coming, Dal? I mean, were there any signs that perhaps you brushed off or were just not aware of? And if there were, did you take any of that back to your sponsor or to meetings to analyze or debrief? Um, I did not see it coming. It totally took me by surprise. Later, I found out that there were friends of mine in the program that had spotted her with someone else at some church. And, you know, there were these stories that I started getting filtered to me. So I I never really knew what the truth was in that matter. And I eventually had to make peace with, I I don't know what's going on here. And I have no, you know, no way of knowing. But the loss of that relationship was 
devastating to me. Yeah. And and then the loss of the home group and how everyone kind of split up. I, I fell in with this younger crowd. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I liked hanging out with. Uh, but I, I I had the most sobriety of all of them. Mm-hmm. My behavior started eroding. I really do believe I was working the steps backwards. You know, I started sleeping with some of these these women, and they were in this group, and they were. It wasn't exactly well. It may have been thirteen stepping. I don't know. They 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 were very young and in sobriety, and I was just hanging out as part of the group, and I was hurt. I think I, I you know I was yeah. hurt, and I was looking to fix myself. <laughs> Yeah, so you you viewed it more as a uh, as a social group. It stopped being an AA group to you. It started being a social group where it was okay to sleep with recovering women who might or might not have had less than a year or been able to make the right decisions. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, uh, it was very much a social group. You know, this bad behavior of mine continued where I ended up sleeping with my uh, best friend's girlfriend, uh, which was you know I I. I I really have no words for that, how, how bad I hurt yeah. my friend and uh, really how hard I treated myself after that because I, I did not forgive myself for many, many years after that. Mm-hmm. It's during this time that I begin going to law school mm-hmm. and I'm spending eight or ten hours a day at school studying during my first year of law school. I'm in a group of 30 people that I see on a regular basis and mm-hmm. there's other guys that... You know, they may have got a DUI when they were younger, but they didn't go run off to rehab. They ended up, uh, you know, bucking it up and sticking it out. And they mm-hmm. drank like normal people, at least what I thought was normal. During that first year of law school, I, I ended up getting so busy. I made very few meetings mm-hmm. compared to what I had been making prior. And a lot of my social connections started fizzling away. I wasn't hanging out with that group anymore. I was hanging out more with the law school people. I still wasn't drinking. I remember during my first semester finals, uh, I think I didn't make a meeting for like three weeks. And I I remember noting that, like, I haven't been in a meeting in three weeks. Um, I think I was down to just one meeting a week at that point. Where was your sponsor during all this? Uh, he was around. I, you know, I was a, at this point, kind of a low maintenance sponsee. So I, I, I'd check in with him um, periodically. Uh, but, you know. So he wasn't aware of how far out you were skating from the herd. No, huh. no. He, he eventually he became aware because I, I started contemplating relapse. Uh, I knew enough to know that if I was an alcoholic. I was always going to be an alcoholic. So I developed this rationale that, well, maybe I wasn't an alcoholic to begin with. (laughs) I thought, well, you know, maybe I was a little too rushed in saying I was an alcoholic in 1996. Maybe I was just a hard drinker, the kind that, Mm -hmm. you know, given a change here and there, like the book says, can resume drinking like a normal person. I had never had physical withdrawals from alcohol. And for some reason... That was a big thing in my mind as I had read some study that said if you had physical withdrawals from alcohol, you know, 99.8% of the people can never go back to any kind of moderated drinking. So I developed a plan for relapse. Okay. Irrespective of what they had told you in treatment about alcohol and alcoholism, you just thought it didn't apply to you? Uh, 
yeah, I was an intellectual, Howard. I was, I was, yeah, <laughs> I was, I was looking yeah. up studies and, and, and things like that. I, I thought I knew, you know, public health is great for the mass public. But, you know, when, when I started looking at the individual case, I thought, you know, there's a chance that I, I was a bit too rash in 1996. And in fact, I wasn't an alcoholic. And so I proceeded to plan a relapse. I spoke to my sponsor. I spoke to my parents about it. They recommended I go see a counselor, and I told her what I was planning on doing, my rationale behind why. I remember she said, well, it sounds like you uh, you know what you're going to do, and uh, there's nothing anyone can do to stop you. And I said, yeah, that's right. Neither your mother or your stepfather tried? Everyone. Everyone tried to steer me away. Everybody tried? Yes. Okay, but you were set in your own mind as to what you were going to do. Right irrespective of what anybody else was thinking, because you're the smart guy. I had quotes from Alcoholics Anonymous textbook that said, you know, go to the nearest bar, take a drink, you know, have two, be honest with yourself. <laughs> yeah, right, <And> right. <laughs> yeah. It's right there in black and white, isn't it? How to relapse. <laughs> it's right there in black and white. Yeah. You, you, you know, this is a program of honesty. And I, I, I had worked the steps successfully so far backwards that I got to the point where I was questioning my own honesty. That's what I did. After my first year of law school, uh, after those finals were over, there was a big party at the end, and I started drinking beer uh, at that party. And I, I didn't get drunk. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't say that I fell off the cliff right away. I, I had this pretense that I was going to do this moderated management. Now, I didn't go to any meetings, of course, but I, I was going to, you know, had these guidelines I was going to adhere to, something like, you know... Uh, no more than three drinks a you know a, a day, and you had to have one drink an hour, and so many drinks per week, or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, I never quite adhered to that. I'm I'm curious about this. When you took that first drink of beer, you know the the old saying of a belly full of beer and a head full of AA can really give you pause for thought or whatever. When you had that first swig of beer and were drinking that first beer. What were you thinking? What what was the thought in, in your mind at that point? Do you remember? This seems to be going well. I didn't develop into a, a full-blown alcoholic after the first drink. Uh, you know, my thought was that, well, the verdict's still out, of course, but I, I'm going to try this. And, and it, you know, it, part of it in my mind was this idea, and this is why my parents and everyone, my old sponsor, everyone was trying to convince me not to do this because... I wouldn't have any control of the outcomes and what was going to go on. And I could lose so much versus staying in the program, you know, yeah. was a, a known factor. And I didn't see it that right. way at that time. Yeah, I, I, I thought it would be as easy to get into the back mm-hmm. into the program as it was for me to get in the program in the first place. You know, I, I jumped in and and I did the work and, and I got the results. And I thought, well, at the first sign of trouble, I'm going to go pick up a desire chip and you know, everything will change. And it, if there's no trouble, then, you know, I can I can live a, a normal life here uh, like the other people do. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. You had been sober for how long when you took that very first drink? Five years. I, I picked up a five-year chip at the end of February, and my first drink was in May. Okay, so you were sober until May of the fifth year of your sobriety, or into the fifth year of your sobriety. Yes. So you're sober, and people have tried to talk you out of it, but now you're convincing yourself by limiting your drinks. Did you feel like you were becoming unalcoholic, or did you feel like maybe you had beaten the system that says, if you're in AA, you're probably alcoholic? What, what was your thinking on that? My thought was, is I, I have to say, you know, very quickly, it, it, it took longer than I thought, but still faster than I thought, where the denial started setting in where I knew I had made a mistake. Okay. But I had created such a commotion about going back out and trying this thing. I, I wasn't ready to give it up. And, and, and I think denial was there. I, I think on some level, I knew that I was not drinking. I was not following my moderation management guidelines. I was not, uh, I, I had no consequences to speak of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was dating a woman at the time who was an, a kind of a, a, an addict and you know she had more problems than I did. Now, no one could have done this. No one could have possibly sat me down and gotten me to admit this. But on some deep level, I believe that I knew what I had done was wrong. And I guess if I would have connected the dots, I would have realized it was going to be harder than I thought to just get back in the program than I had initially thought. I, I initially thought, oh, well, this, you know, I'll just go pick up a desire chip and, uh, and get moving. Uh, little did I know it, it would start a seven-year journey of escalating consequences and alcoholism and drug use. Did you feel, did, was there any self-loathing or um, self-hatred that was driving this as well as just wanting to prove that you could drink like anybody else? Self-harm, let's say? No, uh, I, I, I honestly think at this point I started, you know, that, that uh, head full of AA and the belly full of booze, I started, I started, drinking and, 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 you know, I started bringing uh-huh. marijuana back in the picture and, uh, you know, I, I fell quickly into my old routine of, of, of using, you know, morning to night on, on marijuana. And, and I think I was just medicating myself. So this is 2001. Right. Uh, how long had it taken you from that first beer at that party until you felt like you were back at the level that you were before you got sober? It took probably six months or so before I was at a place where I, I had started using cocaine again. This was a, a time, particularly in law school and in, in the age that we all were, uh, there was a time I could have sworn everyone I knew was using cocaine. Mm-hmm. That fits in with this notion that I had that you do what your friends do. You know, when I first started smoking weed, my friends did too. And when I was doing cocaine, my, my friends did too. And, you know, when I, it's time to get sober, it only makes sense that I have sober friends. Yeah, I get that. Plus, when you're comparing your insides to other people's outsides, it seems like some people in law school or any academic curriculum can use cocaine and it 
does nothing but sharpen them up and help them get through the tough studying and everything else. And then when it's time for them to do the next thing, they leave the cocaine behind. So the seven years from uh, 2001 until 2008, could you point to some happenings during that period of time that whenever it occurred, you would say, I got to get back to AA, but still weren't going back? Yes. I graduated law school, but just well, not barely. I graduated and I, I did okay. But here's a story. You know, I, my first year of law school, I was entirely sober. And by the third year, uh-huh. I'm out with a woman and another couple. And we are at this, for lack of a better term, is a brothel doing cocaine while the, the employees of the brothel are all running around doing their own things. And I look at my watch and realize I have a final exam in three hours. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't studied for it. Oh, no. So I politely excuse myself. I go home and I take my bag of cocaine and I pour myself a big mimosa and I go to school and take my final. And I, I was able to mm. go to the restroom and, and, and do some coke and go back and do my final exam. So I, I, I barely graduated. I did. I graduated, but I barely graduated. Mm. By the time I went to... Uh, take the bar exam, though, my alcoholism had progressed to the point where, you know, because I didn't have this set schedule of going to school and the classes to make, and my alcoholism had progressed to this point where I I could not study for the thing. Uh So I had signed up to take the bar, but ultimately, uh, the day of the test, I didn't show up because I knew I wouldn't pass it because I hadn't studied. Uh, Mm. I had been drinking. I, Uh I remember another incident where I, I was dating this woman at the time, and, and we were going to go to the beach to clean up the beach. Mm-hmm. And I went to bed that night, and I woke up, and I felt like I had mm-hmm. a low-grade fever, and I was tossing and turning and couldn't regulate my temperature, and I was a little shaky. And suddenly it dawned on me I wasn't sick, but I didn't have anything to drink the night before. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly realized I was having those physical withdrawals from alcohol. And all of a sudden, I referenced that study in my head that said, well, once you have these physical withdrawals from alcohol, you physiologically change your body in such a way that, you know, 99.8% of the people can never go back to drinking again in any sort of moderation. And I realized I had crossed that line. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, when I was 19, I may not have crossed that line, but I certainly had it in my genes and I had, I was abusing alcohol. I was on my way to be an alcoholic if I already wasn't one. But at that moment in time, when I'm three in the morning and I'm got the cold sweats in my bed and I realize what was happening to me, I knew I was screwed. I, I, I just mm-hmm. knew it. I, I, and I knew this thing was on me. I had become pickled. I could not unpickle myself. Um, and that was one of these lucid moments. Now, of course, I didn't do anything about it other than drink more because I, I underestimated how hard it was going to be to get back in. Uh, I remember talking with this girlfriend at the time and, and going to a meeting and picking up a desire chip and didn't really follow up with anything. I, I thought I could fall back into this kind of uh, you know, easy sobriety, but it, it, my disease had progressed so much Kind of pick up where you left off, huh? Yes. I, I, I thought the sobriety would be progressive. It turns out that just the disease was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the sobriety stops while the disease continues to progress. I get it. Wow. Yeah. And I, could, I couldn't step back into my five years and, and, and have it be easy. 
So at some point there, you're going back, you're recognizing the fact that after you get these, these shakes or the physical withdrawal symptoms that you have crossed the line. And so you make, I guess, what might be described as a half-hearted effort to go back to AA and it doesn't work. Um, I realize, well, maybe I need more help now. I check into rehab. I, I think I only spent two weeks there. You know, I, I recognized, I knew what I needed to do. I, I was ready to do it. Uh-huh. But again, I, I had this notion, I knew too much and I wasn't humble enough to let go of that. And I had this notion that yeah. I could really step back into the level of maintenance and, and security I had at five years. But I, I didn't realize that the disease had progressed so much. Mm-hmm. So I found myself doing, frankly, dumb things. Like I went back to the bars that I used to go to and I would just drink Red Bull. And, you know, saying that, I knew that that was not what I should be doing, but I I didn't feel comfortable in the meetings and I didn't feel comfortable with those friends. I, I, you know, I I ended up being in this position of of not fitting in anywhere. Uh, I didn't fit in there and I didn't fit in here. And kind of an alcoholic's limbo, huh? Yeah. I think I lasted 30 or 60 days, not not very long. Uh, And then I was back to the races again. This is how many years since you slipped at that point? Probably about three years. Three. So we're talking about 2004 at this time. You're still four years away from getting sober. Yes. Okay. So what was the next big defining moment for you during this ensuing period of time? Dating another woman. That just sounds like a uh, <laughs> a broken record. <laughs> and we couldn't find any powder cocaine and she knew about uh, uh, rock cocaine and how to get it and how to smoke it. And she said, do you want to? And she she kind of was like, I, I could tell she didn't want to turn me on to this, uh, that it might screw up my life. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't see the harm in it. And mm. I had preconceived notions when I was 19. Oh, well, you know, only, you know, these people use needles and only these people smoke crack cocaine and 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 so on and so forth. And when I got to Mm -hmm. the program, I realized there are people who look just like me, talk just like me, come from the same backgrounds as I do, that use these these drugs that Mm -hmm. I would have never considered using. And so I I all of a sudden was open to all these ideas. Uh, And I think that I I also was at this place in my alcoholism and my drug addiction that I I was just wanting more and, and could not get it. So I ended up smoking cocaine that night and it didn't. I thought it was okay. It wasn't great. But. But after the second or third time, I thought it was great. Uh, and it started taking uh, an increasing grip on, on my life that I, I could not really function mm-hmm. any longer. Mm. I ended up having what's called a stimulant psychosis where I start having hallucinations. And these aren't the kind of hallucinations you have on acid or mushrooms where the wall's all wavy and the colors are all bright. These are... Instances where I could not differentiate the reality from, I mean, I, I may have had conversations with people that don't exist. I don't know, Howard. You know, it's, it, it was to that level. Right, like a psychotic episode. Yeah. I've, I've only recently discovered, in fact, that I think I have some measure of PTSD from the amount of paranoia and, and craziness from that period of my life. And... and just the level of fear that I had and paranoia. And it, it surprises me still 13 years later that that I can have something uh, trigger me and, and, and I'm emotionally taken back to that place where I was just frightened out of my gourd that I was going to be caught. You know, 
13 years sober now. I, I'm not doing anything that would be bad, but you know, I can have, still have that feeling. Yeah, that paranoia is a is a classic outcome from uh, smoking crack. Yes, <laughs> I've had other people tell me that, and but you're the first person who's actually suggested that you're still having PTSD, or for a period of time after you had PTSD type symptoms as a response to these psychotic episodes. That's that's very interesting. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I I believe it to be true. I ended up coming clean with my father and my, my family uh, about what I had been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had actually attempted a geographic cure in this time and moved to Austin and got really, really out of sorts there. And so I came clean with my family and my father stepped in and said, look, before you just go check back into the park again and we waste this money, let's find the best place for you to go so that you get the best care and so I ended up going and I, I stayed there for three or four weeks and ended up leaving AMA uh, uh, against medical advice. Uh, I, again, was convinced that I, I knew what I needed to do. I just needed to get back to Houston and do it. And they, they strongly suggested I didn't. They offered me all kinds of options. I didn't want to hear any of it. The, the addiction had really gripped me at this point, and I, I didn't understand about stimulant psychosis, and I learned that, no, that's just in your head. You're, you're not really, you know, uh, those aren't real people. Those are just in your head. And so I, I developed this mentality of, I know I'm not going to win this war, but I just want to win one damn battle. <laughs> and I never could, Howard. I never could. During that three weeks, did you actually, did, did they detox you? I mean, yes. Okay, but the damage or whatever the impact of that crack cocaine had had on you with the paranoia and talking to people who weren't there, that had not been detoxed out of you, I guess, huh? No, I, I had not been detoxed out of that. That, that I think, is a brain chemistry shift. I, I believe I had uh, kind of shifted my brain chemistry in such a way that really the only thing that could be done for me is abstinence. And that eventually my brain chemistry would come back to some semblance of normalcy. But, you know, I, I was operating these upper echelons of, you know, what neurotransmitters can do. And then, you know, uh, the, the opposite effect uh-huh. of going way below the normal line into these these depression sides. But I, I didn't realize it at the time. Mm-hmm. The cravings were manifested in me. But it, but I think it in some sense I was trying to self-medicate because I, I had taken my own brain to levels that it should never go naturally. (laughs) So what you're saying is you may have suffered some brain damage over that and you leave after three weeks and you come back home. And this is how many years now before you finally made it to AA? Uh, This had to have been 2004 still. So I, I was still another four years out. It's almost like Bill's story where, you know, Bill gets to this place and he, he thinks he's done. And then, you know, Two years go by and the wreckage continues. Let me ask you this, Dow, you know, with regard to trying to uh, make sure that that people get the story. But I want to leave time for us to talk about the since you got sober part of your story. But can you compact the, the four years between when you came back and when you first showed up in AA? What did those years look like? Three rehabs in 2004. By the time... 2005 rolled around, I was resisting any sort of help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got kicked out of my, uh, the only place that would have me, and I couldn't afford my own place, so I got kicked out of my father's house. 
Mm-hmm. I uh, ended up getting a job uh, working uh, with this attorney who was an alcoholic. In fact, my interview with him was at a bar, so I, I had it nailed. Uh, yeah. And eventually I got caught up with the law, and that was in December of 2005. Uh, I got a possession charge, uh-huh. got on uh, deferred adjudication, ended up violating my, my probation. And I actually had enough time, if I could have stayed sober, to pass my urinalysis test, but I, I could not stay sober. So the day of my urinalysis test, I didn't show up. Uh, I called the probation officer and said I didn't go um, because I was going to not pee clean. And uh, she she told me I needed to come ahead and pee and that I was scheduled to go to court the next day to talk to the judge. Mm-hmm. I was assured that it was since it was my first probation violation, I needed to go and, and check in or get a note that said I was going to go to uh, outpatient somewhere. And, and I showed up. I went to a local rehab and got some paperwork saying that I was uh, planning on going to outpatient treatment. Um, and I showed up the next day at court and gave the judge this letter. And he said, well, I think it's admirable uh, that you think you need help, but I think you're beyond the point of choosing the help you need. And he said, I'm I'm going to give you the help that I think you need. And it began a, a nine-month-long journey through uh, the county system, going to Harris County Jail to wait on a bed to open up. It was an Harris County Jail for 82 days waiting on a bed to open up at this substance abuse treatment facility, mm-hmm. which was a therapeutic community, which was entirely different from any rehab I'd been to before. I went to this therapeutic community for six months, um, got out at the very end of 2015. There were no meetings there, mm-hmm. but one of the counselors I knew and uh and, and and I really tried to stay sober while I was there. I I, I, yeah. I I really did. I started taking another guy through the steps there. Uh-huh. We were talking all the time about sobriety. Um, and then I got out, and one of the first opportunities I, I got, I, I ended up using again. And I, for the life of me, could not figure out why I had, I had done it. Yeah. But I did learn that I didn't want to get caught violating probation again. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. Now, when you say you uh, started using again, can we assume you're talking about crack cocaine at this point plus alcohol or was it more of one than the other? This was alcohol. Um, I was trying to stay away from crack. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was getting powdered cocaine. Okay. But that, I relapsed on that and I quickly came to my senses and realized I did not want to go back to a place like that or state jail or any other place like that. Uh So I, I didn't use, you know, I stopped using and I stayed sober out of fear really Mm -hmm. for the rest of the term of my probation. And I I was going to meetings at that time just because it was a social outlet and something to do. And And this was the period of my sobriety where I had two sobriety dates, the one in my head and the one that was real. Or the the, the mm-hmm. one that I told everyone else, and then the one that, that that I knew was true. Yeah. And eventually, when my probation was up, I had this idea of going back on the on the marijuana maintenance program, and and that's what I was going to do. Mm. Uh, but eventually, the marijuana led to drinking, and eventually, the drinking led to harder drugs. Mm. So no matter how hard you tried, all gates became the gates to full blown using and alcoholism. Yes. 
It's not like you could switch to marijuana. That gate swung open to harder stuff. And the drinking, the, the occasional beer swings the gate open to unabated drinking. I wasn't doing as much cocaine at this time because i gotten burned pretty badly by it. And so I was trying to keep away from cocaine. Uh-huh. Not that I didn't do it, but I didn't do it all the time. But mostly I was drinking and using marijuana. Um, okay. And I would mostly drink at home, but occasionally I'd get lonely and I'd go out to a CD bar. I couldn't go to any of the places I used to go because I didn't want anyone to know. Everyone knew that I shouldn't be drinking. And, and if they saw me there, they would tell me so. Right. Um, and so I was going to CD bars and, and the, the night came of uh, May 22nd of 08 mm-hmm. uh, that I was at one such bar and I had a blackout. I do not remember... What happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I remember barely getting to the bar, and I don't remember what happened at the bar. Uh, I don't remember leaving. I do remember uh, driving down the street and seeing the lights flick on behind me, and uh, I got pulled over, taken to jail for DUI again. Uh-huh. And it was in jail that night that I didn't care what happened to me. I, I could have rotted. I, I didn't. I just, I didn't have the will to go on anymore. And I was tired. You were done. I was done. Uh, my father uh, bailed me out. And I remember getting bailed out at two in the morning or whatever. And turning the corner on uh, Travis or St. Jacinta or whatever it was. And, and I don't know if I fell to a knee or not, but I said some version of the third step prayer. And I was done. And and we went back to my father's house and he told me, look, I'm, I'm done. I can't watch you kill yourself anymore. This is the last time. If, if you drink and use again, I, I'm done. I can't, I cannot watch you do this to yourself anymore. And I knew I was done. Mm. Um, the, the very next day I went to the Post Oak Club and I picked up a desired chip. Mm-hmm. Um, that was May 23rd of 08. Uh, that night I returned to, I think it was the 7.30 or 8 o'clock meeting. It was the 8 o'clock meeting. Uh-huh. And I saw a guy that I had seen a couple years before. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, prior to that, Howard, I, I felt like I, I needed the perfect sponsor. It had all the experience and had it all these things. But, but I saw Steve C. and I knew I wanted what he had that I had seen him two years prior and he had 60 days and I had zero days and he looked like he was having fun and he had friends around him mm-hmm. and, and I knew he was a good guy because I had had conversations with him before and we had, we had done some of the same things and so I asked him to be my sponsor and we got to work. Um, within the first 90 days, I had finished all 12 steps. Mm-hmm. I did not dilly-dally on the fourth step or anything. I was ready to go. Uh, I was seeing a, a therapist at the time as well. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I, I got really busy. Uh, and for the first time since 1996, really, in, in, in whatever it was, 12 years, I felt like I had reached this place where I was willing to learn again. You became humble, I guess, huh? I suppose. I, I, I reached this place where I, 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 I needed it. You know, I, I finally was ready. Hmm ready for the message mm-hmm. and, and I took to it like a, a fish out of water I mean within I, I started sponsoring a guy when I had three months and mm-hmm. and he's still sober today and, and and I got busy and I took some time outside of a relationship to work on myself mm-hmm. you know I started doing things that 
maybe I should have done back in 1996, like stay out of a relationship. You know, that was a suggestion. But since I was already in one, I kind of felt like I, I had a, a, a pass there. Um, but I never got to work on that part of myself. Back then, you were stopping drinking for the relationship, whereas it sounds like now you were really stopping for yourself irrespective of right. relationships or anything else going on, huh? I, I was going to die. I had already had two stimulant-induced seizures, uh, overdoses, mm. and one way or the other, I was going to die, and I, I, I didn't want, I wanted to live. So looking at your story over the last 13 years, sounds to me like maybe you retained something from your first sobriety. Did you find that there was anything from your first go-around of sobriety that aided you in your program, or was that all cautionary of what not to do? I had all the experience mm -hmm. that I had collected. Uh, you know, more and more, I understand uh, a lot of the difference between one year and, and 10 years of sobriety has to do with the amount of experiences I collect sober. And, and right. I still had those experiences sober that I had five years ago and, and the mistakes I had made or when I not five years ago, when I had had those five years, mm -hmm. I still had those experiences. And so uh, some things, I, you know, I doing a fourth step, for instance, it, it, it was so much easier for me. This time around, I had done one before and and I, I knew the process of doing it and how it worked. And I was able to just put pen to paper and go. Yeah. Uh, so all those experiences, the, the notion of getting involved in service work and 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 the like that that was already ingrained in me. So, yes, it, I, I, I still have that experience that I had uh, back in the late 90s. And I, I mm -hmm. have many of the same friends that I have from back then. I'm still talked to my first sponsor um, uh, and many, many of the friends that I had back then. Um, mm -hmm. It's always nice to see them. So, you know, we say that if you're sober for a while and you get drunk again, you'll pick up where you would have been had you not stopped. But starting AA again, you don't necessarily pick up where you stop there, do you? You have to learn all kinds of new stuff, don't you? It's almost like I had to forget stuff, Howard. Really? <laughs> That's <laughs> it, interesting. It, it's almost like I had to let go of the chip that I had on my shoulder that, oh, well, I had five years. Well, yeah, I had five years, but I had zero days. Uh, you know, I, I, I had to get rid of that chip on my shoulder and, mm -hmm. and get to this place of humility. And only after I got to that place... Could I benefit from the experience I had previously? Yeah. Uh, I, I knew I had made some progress in a meeting when I, you know, wasn't constantly sharing about, well, when I got sober back in 1996, <laughs> uh, when, I, when I stopped referencing those old times and started focusing on what was going on with me here and now, yeah. I knew I had made some kind of progress. And yeah, that's really an exceptional way to go about it the second time around. And, you know, I'm thinking, thank God that you made it back with everything that went on during that, that hiatus from AA. There's a, a God deal there where you were able to get back before dying. That's something certainly to be grateful for. I'm grateful that you made it back because you're a good man and a good friend. You know, the, sometimes the most involved part of a person's story is the how it was and what happened part. But I wondered if you could identify perhaps a handful of things that have happened in your period of sobriety and maybe one or two things that happened that you might not have been able to get through had you not been sober. <laughs> uh, 
I got married in sobriety, and my my wife uh, likes to joke that uh, she would have given me a date if I was drinking, but that would have been the last date. But <laughs> she would have probably gone and drank way too much, and she would have never, never gone out with me again. Oh, boy. But I'm grateful she's never seen me drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, we're celebrating our, our 10th year uh, anniversary this year, uh, and I think it's our 12th year of being together. Congratulations. We thank you. Uh, we have two children that have never seen me drunk, and mm. I pray that they never will. Yeah, thank God for that. Yes, uh, and, and and so they're 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 little miracles uh-huh. uh, that I have no doubt I would not I would not be capable of uh, being a father if I was back in two thousand five and two thousand six when I was really at the worst part of my, my drinking and using. Yeah, that would have been horrible had there been children around I'm, I'll guess. It would have been absolutely horrible. So I, I am grateful for those things. I'm I'm now my my family trusts me mm. and and um, you know, I, I get I work with my family. Um, mm-hmm. my family's not having to worry about me stealing money from them or from the business yeah. or, or other things uh-huh. I, I have, you know, I have their trust. The benefits that, that sobriety give me are, are almost too many to enumerate. I, I, what I've really been able to do and the book says, this is about rejoining the human race. I, I, I instead of being this leech on society, uh, just self-serving my own chemical dependency, I, I, I really, I've become accountable to others, and I, I have responsibilities like I never, I, I never would have been able to handle had I been using. That accountability is so important to staying sober. Being accountable to sponsors and people in your home group and your spouse and your children; those are all such such big things. During this last thirteen years, were were there ever times or periods that you started veering off out of the center towards the the edge of the herd, or even? further out or have you been hooked in uh, this entire time i i've been hooked in the entire time uh-huh. uh a few years ago i was having some back problems and probably the closest i got to that um was being prescribed pain painkillers but yeah. I, I was i was very honest with everyone about what was going on mm-hmm. and what i was taking it for and cool. you know eventually i got to this place where i was able to talk to the doctor and he said can you live this way? And I said, not without painkillers because this is killing me. Right. And he said, well, let's do surgery then because that's not an option. I said, no, it's not an option. So we, we did that. Um, that was probably the closest. And I, I feel as though it was really a distance within me less than anyone else. Mm-hmm. There, there's been a few uh, situations like that where my presence at the meetings is never uh, – I've never – slacked on my my meetings or, or being there mm-hmm. uh, but good. sometimes i feel more distant and and it's really about me working my program and how i need to to step up doing the things i do or reach out for me the the biggest thing is reaching out to my sponsor and to my support group and and really just telling them what's going on yeah. with me and i i found during that period of having uh before my back surgery uh-huh. I, I really had to do that quite a bit and and, and i'm grateful that i had them because uh had I been left alone to my own devices, I, I may have gone overboard. Yeah. And, and I know because you and I had talked about it at the time. I know what that kind of pain is like because I had three back operations yes, for the same did. sciatic nerve damage. And it's amazing how close we can sometimes come to to the edge if we're not careful. But it sounds like you have the accountability. You've got the meeting attendance. You've got 
you've just got a lot of things, obviously, to be grateful for, but also to inspire others. And yours is one of the messages that needs to be told, I think, more than probably any other. And that is, don't think that if you leave AA, you'll be able to get back because you almost didn't. I almost didn't, you know, don't drink and don't die. And, and you know, I, I uh, fortunately, I didn't die. And, you know, I, I kept coming back because that's really the only thing I did right was I kept coming back. Uh, I kept trying over. I, I picked up so many desire chips. I, I, I stopped picking them up yeah. at some point and then someone called me out on that too. So <laughs> I just, you know, I, I just kept coming back. That's the only thing I did right other than not die. And, and that was totally out of my control. I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, Dow, that I'm glad you did come back. And, and I'm so glad that you've told your story here today. This is going to be really very important for people out there to hear. And uh, you're, you're a big part of my life. I love you and you're a good man and you have good sobriety now. And, and it's, it's admirable. And it's one of those things that we can say, thank God, Dow is sober. So I really want to thank you for doing this, brother. Thank you, Howard. And thank you for uh, all the work you do, uh, particularly with this podcast and, and mm-hmm. your other podcasts, the Big Book podcast. That's mm-hmm. uh, so great. I, I can't tell you how many early times when I was early in sobriety, I had a, a tape of the Big Book and I would drive around in my car <laughs> listening to this tape of the Big Book. And it, it's it's really it's really beneficial. I, I've even used... Uh, the big book podcast with a sponsee that that doesn't uh, uh, isn't a very strong reader and will listen to it while we read the book, so it, it's very helpful. A great service. Thank you for saying that. It means a lot to me that that you're that you're listening and that you know about it. And again, uh, thanks for doing this. I so enjoy seeing you. Of course. Thank you, Howard. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Dow H for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least five people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you leave a multi-star rating where you get this podcast, that'll help others find it more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. This podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.